This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. Unlike most of Canada, the vast majority of British Columbia is not covered by treaties. A First Nation is battling for its land rights in the B.C. Supreme Court and paving the way for other Indigenous communities to follow. Matt Spears reads Ground Rules. This is an article titled Ground Rules by Troy Sebastian. Robed figures entered the room in silence and took their seats on the dais at the Supreme Court of Canada in regal movements. Lawyers fidgeted as our delegation of Tunaha elders, leaders, and youth packed into a stockade-like public gallery. The hour was early, but it felt as though the day had already passed. This was the place to be, and yet it was not the location where justice was found. Some few thousand miles west, amid the hanging glacier memories of Kataha, deep in the snowfields where the grizzly bear spirit goes to dance, a developer was determined to turn a millennia-old sacred space into a year-round skiing monstrosity known as the Jumbo Glacier Resort. The project had long been met with opposition. Some locals were less than enthusiastic about another ski resort when there were so many options in the area. The Tunaha Nation rejected the proposal. In response, in 2010, the Tunaha Nation shared vital cultural and spiritual knowledge with the province and the public in the form of the Kutmuk Declaration, which demonstrated the significance for the Tunaha of the area known as Kutmuk that included the proposed location of the resort. The Tunaha understand Kutmuk as the place where the grizzly bear spirit goes to dance and respect it as a deeply sacred location. Cultural and spiritual knowledge is protected and scarcely shared outside of the nation. However, in the interest of protecting this place, the Tunaha Nation offered the Kutmuk Declaration. A delegation of Tunaha undertook a two-day journey from Tunaha Territory to Victoria to hand-deliver the declaration to a B.C. MLA at a ceremony in the legislature. In 2012, nearly a year and a half after receiving the Kutmuk Declaration from the Tunaha Nation, the province approved the project. The Tunaha Nation contested that decision and chose a legal path that would take years to reach a resolution. In late 2012, the Tunaha Nation filed an application for a judicial review of the province's decision. At the heart of the case was the question of whether Indigenous sacred spaces and practices could be afforded protection under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The Tunaha argued that the approval of the resort by the province did not adequately consider the impact on Tunaha religious practices and beliefs as the resort's development would cause the grizzly bear spirit to leave Kutmuk, irreparably damaging the sacred site. The trial in the B.C. Supreme Court lasted two weeks in January 2014. That April, the court dismissed the Tunaha Nation's application. The nation then applied to appeal that decision at the B.C. Court of Appeal. In 2015, that court dismissed the Tunaha Nation's appeal. The following year, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed to hear the Tunaha Nation's case. After years of legal wrangling, court hearings and appeals, as well as countless hours spent in community talking with knowledge holders, elders and leaders, 
the crafting of affidavits, and generations of ceremony and existence in Tunaha territory, we finally had a date at the Supreme Court of Canada. The nation, of which I am a member, had given a lot to that case and to the Canadian legal system. We were prepared for our day in court. When the Supreme Court of Canada dismissed the Tunaha Nation's appeal in 2017, it was not a surprise. In the court, the majority of judges failed to see how the building of a ski resort on a sacred space would violate the Tunaha's right to religious freedom. While two judges did recognize this violation, they noted in a partially concurring decision that religious freedom had to be weighed against the provincial government's mandate to dispense crown land in the public interest. In the judge's opinion, the province had made a reasonable decision. That we had gotten that far was remarkable. Our path was indexed against the unique shadow of Canadian injustice called constitutional law that sweeps Indigenous peoples under in perpetuity. We were in the wrong place at a wrong time. When the Chief Justice of Canada began her incantation of introductions, she mispronounced our nation's name and the name of our nation's chair. Some of us would have expected basic understanding of a language they do not know, understand, or recognize, a language from a land they claim as their own and define and dispose as wilderness. These were simply words on a page that was soon to be dismissed and forgotten like a dry-cleaning bill for robes, stained with denial. Indigenous people in court face the same field of austere indifference and lethal judgment. Whether it is a courtroom consideration over the rights of Indigenous peoples who predate the constitutional roots of Canada by several millennia, or the perfunctory justice that incarcerates tens of thousands of Indigenous people each year, it makes little difference. Our rights do not matter. The Tunaha journey to justice began in the mountains. But these paths take many journeys. One new legal path to justice reached the courts last year, originating from a nation on the west coast of Vancouver Island, and it has the potential to pave a road for Aboriginal title claims across British Columbia. The New Hotlet Nation is seeking declaration of Aboriginal title over a roughly 200-square-kilometer area that includes part of Nootka Island. In 2017, Walter Michael, the late New Hotlet Tai Hawilth, or head chief, began the nation's lawsuit for title and rights recognition at the B.C. Supreme Court. In a public statement, he relayed a familiar story of how the nation has spent many frustrating years in treaty discussions and other processes in hopes of protecting its land and people. Michael noted that successive governments have failed to give New Hotlet serious ESOC, respect, for their rights and title. The New Hotlet have seen their territory marred by resource extraction that has adversely impacted New Hotlet's sacred land and food sources. The crux of the case is this. The New Hotlet argue that they exclusively occupied the land in 1846 when the British asserted sovereignty over the area and that this fulfills the legal test for Aboriginal title. In its written argument, the province disagreed with the New Hotlet's interpretation of the test arguing that the existing law states that the history of ancestors to the modern-day New Hotlet, both before and after the date of sovereignty, is very significant. The province noted that the evidence shows there were multiple independent and autonomous local groups using part of the claim area at various times up to and after 1846. 
There are many terms used when describing Indigenous peoples and their rights in Canada. Some terms are defined by Indigenous people themselves, while other terms are used by settler society to define and control Indigenous peoples and lands. Today, Indigenous is the preferred term used internationally to describe peoples and nations who were present on territories claimed and colonized by settlers. In government, the arts, and the private sector, Indigenous is the widely accepted term. The Government of Canada defines Indigenous peoples as including First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. For some, Indigenous rights do not necessarily mean Aboriginal rights, as defined by the government. Among governments and the general public, there is much misunderstanding around how Aboriginal rights are defined. Section 35 of the Constitution Act, 1982, states, 1. The existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. 2. In this Act, Aboriginal peoples of Canada includes the Indian, Inuit, and Métis peoples of Canada. 3. For greater certainty, in subsection 1, treaty rights includes rights that now exist by way of land claims agreements or may be so acquired. 4. Notwithstanding any other provision of this Act, the Aboriginal and treaty rights referred to in subsection 1 are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. The 2007 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP, is the international recognized standard of rights. However, Canadian governments have long resisted implementing the declaration, arguing that affirming UNDRIP's standard would put too onerous a burden on the Crown in relation to Indigenous peoples by effectively providing Indigenous peoples with veto power that would fetter government discretion, that is, Crown authority. While BC recognizes UNDRIP on paper, through its 2019 Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, DRIPA, the province has failed to do so on the land. According to DRIPA, Indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired. The New Hotlet case is the first Aboriginal title case to enter the courts since the provincial government passed DRIPA. Many major Supreme Court cases dealing with Indigenous rights in Canada have referenced Section 35 and the definition of Aboriginal rights, but the question of what counts as Aboriginal rights has been debated both in and out of courts. They have been interpreted to include fishing rights, other harvesting rights, procedural rights such as consultation and accommodation, and rights to the land itself, as well as the Queen Matriarch of All Rights, Aboriginal title. Unlike most of Canada, the vast majority of British Columbia is not covered by treaties. The Crown does not have treaties with most First Nations in the province. This was a result of the province's unwillingness to enter into treaty negotiations with Indigenous peoples, hoping and sincerely working toward our erasure. This approach lasted until the early 1990s. While a treaty process began in the early 1990s, it has only produced seven modern treaties. The slow and costly process has made final agreements a rare milestone. This lack of treaties creates uncertainty for the Crown when pursuing its interests in the province, as the certainty framework it relies on elsewhere in Canada is not available here. At the heart of the matter is the question, what does Section 35 mean?
Provincial and federal counsel have argued that it is an empty box that does not contain any rights unless agreed to by the Crown or established by court decision. Conversely, Indigenous peoples, who have lived on these lands much, much longer than Canada has existed, have argued that Section 35 is a box full of rights that Indigenous peoples possess, including Aboriginal title. The Crown continues to rely on the doctrine of discovery, the framework used by England, France, Spain, and Portugal, that asserted that lands they stumbled upon were effectively empty at the time of discovery. Indigenous peoples recognize the doctrine as the legal, political, and moral fiction that it is. Over the years, there have been challenges. One of the most significant Aboriginal title cases was the Supreme Court of Canada's 2014 Silcotton Nation v. British Columbia decision. The case was brought to the B.C. Supreme Court by the Zeniguetan, a member band of the Silcotton Nation in B.C.'s interior, which argued that they possessed clear Aboriginal title to an area within their territory. After years and years of court hearings, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in favor of the entire Silcotton Nation. Silcotton Nation versus British Columbia was a landmark decision. The first declaration of Aboriginal title by any court in Canada in more than 30 years. While the court did not recognize Aboriginal title across the country, it provided precedent for future Aboriginal title cases to be brought to court. Considering the more than two centuries of denial and erasure that every Indigenous community in British Columbia has faced, it is remarkable that every community has not launched numerous legal challenges already. Genocide and the prohibition on hiring lawyers to pursue Indigenous legal claims were the barricades that stopped an uncountable number of cases before they could take their first steps. But that barricade is cracking. For the British Columbia government, it is easy to have cozy photo ops with happy Indigenous peoples. Those are the only faces allowed in the frame. Small modicums of resources positioned as revenue-sharing are no panacea for poverty. But the NDP cannot be solely blamed for this. The previous Liberal governments franchised the playbook of playing Indigenous consent for reconciliation. Under their new relationship policy, the province began engaging in economic revenue-sharing agreements, some of which were criticized by First Nations for being small and short-term. These agreements seemed to punt questions of Aboriginal title and rights for short-term economic certainty. After generations spent facing denial, many First Nations took advantage of these opportunities. Still, the fundamental question of title has not been resolved. Systemic poverty and cultural genocide are the key ingredients to ignoring uncomfortable questions on who actually owns the nearly million square kilometers of land that forms the province. The New Hotlet case can change this. If the nation is successful in having any portion of its Aboriginal title declared by the Supreme Court of British Columbia, what does that say for the approximately 200 other First Nations in the province that have yet to seek a declaration of title? With a B.C. Supreme Court decision on the horizon, the New Hotlet could be the first nation to apply the precedent-setting Silcotton decision to have their Aboriginal title recognized. No matter the shifting goalposts of Indigenous rights policy in Canada and British Columbia, the tides are changing. <music> 
that was an article titled Ground Rules by Troy Sebastian. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.